Oh 
if you know me at all, you know that I'm not a good, I'm not good at sleeping. You'd think that'd be something that comes naturally, right? No, not for me. Especially when things are stressful, so you can imagine as of late. But what I like to do at nighttime is I, I start listening to scripture. When I can't sleep, when all else fails, I start listening to scripture. And I was praying the other night, like, Lord, I feel so helpless. I really, I don't know how to help. The world is literally falling apart. What do I do? And within 10 seconds, the scripture that I was listening to landed on the verse from John that says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent, Jesus, right? I was like, took a deep breath. I was like, okay, that sounds so simple. The work of God is this, to believe in Jesus, okay. And then that made me think, okay, Matthew 22 says, what is the greatest commandment? A Pharisee asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And of course the answer is, if you're familiar with it, Jesus answered, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, and with all of your soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So I started to meditate on that first commandment, to love the Lord your God. We should start there. And then another scripture came to mind. I've been reading in Deuteronomy lately. And in verse uh, 8 of chapter 10, it says, At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi. The Levites would be considered like the OG pastors or worship leaders back there in the Bible times. He set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless his name. It's not something we often think about. We minister to the Lord by our praise to the Lord. We think we need to be ministered to, but God wants us to minister to him through our praise of him. A God who surrounds himself day and night and night and day, like Pastor Steve talked about last week, with angels and elders proclaiming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That is a God who not only deserves to be praised, he wants to be praised. Sorry, I'm a little long-winded this morning, but I got a little fired up. So with this next song, we are going to engage in vertical worship. That is us ministering to the Lord. And in the light of all the crazy that's happening in the world, we are going to love on the Lord with our hearts and our mind and our soul and raise a hallelujah. So I really invite you, if you're not already, stand. Close your eyes if you need to focus. But let's unite in the spirit and bless his name together.
Father, we indeed love you. Help us to love you better. May we honor that most important commandment, Lord. Grab a hold of our hearts this morning. Chase after us as we chase after you. We thank you for an awesome time in your presence. How cool to come together and bless you and minister to you, the God most high. Anoint the rest of the service we ask and pray. In the name of your beautiful son, Jesus, and all of you at home, and join us in saying, amen. going on right now, a lot of things have had to be canceled, but we are not canceling VBX for this summer for all of our K through fifth graders at Northview. Instead, we are going to be moving VBX to at home so you can enjoy all the things you love about VBX right in your own backyard and your own living room. So register today online at nview.org for the greatest event of the entire summer. And we can't wait to see how we will explore deeper about God's love and God's character this year at VBX. So grab your swimsuits and your snorkels because at VBX 2020, we're diving deep at Mission Deep Sea. So get ready. Ah! Let's go. Thanks, worship team. Wonderful job. Uh, things have been busy. Obviously, there's a lot going on and pretty chaotic. Uh, I just wanted to give us a heads up that uh, there have been a number of graduations to heaven in the last week or two that uh, we want to make sure you know about. Um, just last week, we had uh, Richard Kennard's funeral. Richard and Kathy have been here a long time and deeply loved and uh, we wanted to make sure that you knew of that. Secondly, our, our beloved friend Nell Shaleen passed away, and uh, his funeral will be announced later in fall because they want to have a regular funeral, and they're hoping that it will open up. So we will keep you informed of those details, but you can pray for Nancy, obviously, huge loss. And then lastly, many of you would remember Deb and Lynn Geringer. Deb and Lynn Geringer were a big part of Northview. They were part of the prayer team on Sunday mornings, did a lot of other things. And just last week, Lynn actually passed away as well. And so if you know those uh, families, if you know the wives, uh, please feel free to contact them, email them, send them a card. I'm sure they would appreciate being reached out to you. So just wanted to give you that heads up. All right, we'll move into uh, our message for this morning. We've been in a series in the Psalms called Truth Versus Lies. 
And so far in our study, we've been uh, confronting two lies. The first lies, uh, the two lies about God that, that we're wrestling with, the first one is that he's not all-powerful. We covered that already. You can, by the way, go to our website, download that message if you missed it, and pick it up. But the second one is that he is not good. We saw that the Psalms and, and the people who wrote them, uh, King David and others, had, uh, has, had strong counterclaims to these ideas. They took the opposite of the coin. Their take was that God is not only all-powerful, but that he's all good. And this invitation challenge is issued by King David. Look what he says in Psalm 34. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Last week, we spent time going through the Psalms declaration that, that God is good. And this is a very important topic because it has to do not only with his character, uh, what type of person he is, but it also has to do with his decrees or laws that he puts forward. What kind of ruler or authority is he? And this matters greatly for people who wish to relate to him. If he's not perceived to be good by you, you are not going to trust coming under submission to him. So thus, that necessitates that we take a look at the laws that he gave as they are a reflection of the type of ruler that he is. For the next two weeks, we're going to explore the idea that God's law is not good. So let's pray this morning. Would you join me? And uh, let's seek the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning. Our country is wounded. It's torn. It's in a mess right now. Lord, there's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of disillusionment. It's a great place, Father, for you to break in. And in your great mercy, we would ask you to be kind to us. We know that we don't deserve it. We know that our sins are higher than our head. We know there are gulfs that we can't breach. Lord, we have not been able to fix ourselves. And on top of that, we have told you to take a hike that we don't need you anymore and we don't want you in our country. And thus, we are reaping the just reward of those kind of statements and attitudes. But Lord, all through your word, you have been merciful. And we pray that once again, for the sake of many, especially teenagers and junior high and children who never had a fair chance to hear you, that you would work a work again in our country. And Lord, as it comes to this morning with looking at your laws, you know we have some hiccups and some hangups with that. I ask that you, by your spirit, would help to feather those ideas and, and Lord, bring clarity to that so that we can rejoice in who you are and the laws you've given, and we seek you for that in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to start this morning uh, with one of my personal favorites when it comes to the Psalms. It's one of the places I always look forward to and anticipate landing on when it comes to reading the Bible, and that's Psalm 19. And it starts by describing the incomparable glory of God's creation, and thus the glory of God's power. And it reads like this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims the work of his hands. Day after day it pours forth speech, night after night it reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words who, where their voice is not heard. And their voice goes out into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And I just apologize right there because I realize I'm quoting NIV while I'm reading ESV. So uh, hang in there with me. <laughs> 
I memorized it the other way. Okay, but the heavens declare the glory of God. Let's get that part right. They declare not just his power, but his engineering skills, his design skills, his process skills, his artistic skills, and much, much more. Romans 1 validates this whole idea when it says this. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And then the question would be, well, how has he shown it? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. Notice here how Paul links God's eternal power with his divine nature and says that they are symbiotic, they go together. You can't have one without the other. And how is this known? Paul says, just look around you. Look at the created, yes, created order of the universe and our planet. Uh, just this week, we were, I was outside in our backyard barbecuing, and uh, I was looking, and, and Matt came out, and I said to him, hey, Matt, check out those cottonwood trees. And uh, over across the lot in the swamp part of our development is a, uh, these two gigantic cottonwood trees. They must be at least 150 feet tall. And I was just looking at that and marveling at how something can be that big, that flexible, stand in the wind and not topple over or buckle in on itself. The kind of strength that's in that kind of wood. And right as I was pointing that out to Matt, one of those little fuzzy cotton ball, you know, our snow, right? Uh, Seattle spring snow, cotton, cotton weed. And so it came through and I grabbed one. And if you look at one of those closely, it's a huge fuzz with a little tiny dot in the center. That little tiny dot is a cottonwood tree seed. And that little seed planted in the ground becomes those great big giants. And the Bible says that is the created evidence of God. Look at what you see right around you. So out of God's eternal power, he's all powerful, and his divine nature, he's all good, comes then something very important, his law. Now here's where it gets a bit tricky and sticky for us. The law, when we think of the law, the Old Testament, does not have a very good reputation among us as Protestant evangelicals. Most of us do not look forward to reading through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. We kind of choke on those parts, right? And we can't wait to get out of there and get to the New Testament. And we just have massive antennas out for legalism. And, uh, and we're very strong, and rightfully so, on you can't work or earn your way into heaven. And that we can't affect our own righteousness. So uh, salvation is by grace and grace alone. And because of that grace, it's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves us. And to that I say amen and amen and amen. But this puts us in a predicament. We have what I call an evangelical conundrum. God is good, but we treat his law like it's bad. But if you read scripture, the law is not bad. Listen clearly to the Apostle Paul. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. How might that had I not known sin except through the law. For I had not known coveting, except that the law had said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, finding an occasion, 
wrought in me through the commandment all manner of coveting. For apart from the law, sin is dead. So that the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and righteous, and good. Did then that which is good become death unto me? God forbid again. But sin, that it might be shown to be sin, by working death to me through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become exceedingly sinful. Now, that's a lot of verbiage right there, and Paul is great with words, and you may have gotten a little bit lost, but let me help clarify a little bit. We see that according to the New Testament, the law has basically two specific purposes. The first one is to show me how bad sin is and that I have to move away from it. And then number two, that is then designed to show me my need for my Savior. In other words, the law is set up to show me what sin looks like so that I realize I have a need. If I think I'm fine and I don't need a Savior, the law says, I will show you why you need a Savior. Here's where and how you're failing. Okay? For, it is, for that is the only way I can move away from my sin. I have to know what's wrong, and the law shows me what's, what's wrong. Paul says that the law serves a very useful service. It points me towards Christ. This is in Galatians, and I'm using the New American Standard Bible uh, translation for this. It says, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which later would be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor. And, has to, to, and what's the purpose of a tutor? To teach or coach or mentor, right? To, and the purpose of the law is to tutor, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Again, so we can see the law is good because it comes from a good God. What Paul is saying is that the law starts out here and we go around and around and we drop down and it just scrunches down like a funnel till we pop out the bottom and when we pop on the bottom, that is supposed to point us to Jesus. Here's a, here's a good way we could summarize it so that it makes sense to us. Bad kings make bad laws. Good kings make good laws. Laws that are made come out of the person, in other words, out of their heart, out of the nature of the person making the law. Let's use two examples we're familiar with. King Saul made bad choices and bad laws. King David made good choices and good laws. King David understood the goodness of God, and thus King David understood the goodness of the law. Let's go back to Psalm 19 and look at how he expresses this. This is one of the, my most favorite sections in all of Scripture. It says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Let's pull this apart a little bit. It starts with the perfection of the law, and it says that the law revives the soul. Psalm 119, 96, we'll look at that in a little bit, says, I've seen a limit to all perfection, 
but your commandment is exceedingly broad. In other words, the psalmist is saying, I have looked, and when I'm looking at your law, I see perfection in it. This means that the law carries with it what would be called moral excellence. Reviving the soul means that it brings it to life again. It resuscitates us. Just like a 911 paramedic would find someone on the pavement and treat them and, and give them CPR, and we would say, hey, they brought them back or, or they're coming back around. Paul or the, David is saying that's what the law does. It re, resuscitates us. It revives us. They are reviving literally means brought back to life. Remember Psalm 1? We are walking the path of life and avoiding the path of sin. That carries this idea. The testimony, the second part is the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. This is one of the main reasons to read through the Bible. You begin to see it from God's perspective and you start to gain understanding. And from that, you begin to gain wisdom. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When you walk right with God, you have great joy. We call this walking in or following uh, God's path. And, and wisdom is often viewed as a path. This is literally where we get the term walking with God. We're walking down God's path. We walk life in a right way, and when we do, it creates joy. And this is common sense. When we do what is right, we have joy. When we do what is wrong or sinful, we lose that joy. Psalm goes on to say, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. When we study God's thoughts and the precepts he lays out for us, we gain not only wisdom, but also something very important that the Bible calls enlightenment. In other words, the light bulb goes on. We see it. It means we're able to see things that we were never able to see before. I remember when I first got saved and I was reading through the Bible twice in those first six months and I had these enormous aha moments. Like, where was, oh my gosh, can you, I did, whoa, wow. I mean, it was just blowing me out of the water. And what was happening was the Holy Spirit was linking wisdom and life. And, and I was getting it. And when that happens, our eyes shine when that happens. Okay? The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Both Psalms and Proverbs tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Here it says that it produces, what it produces is clean. And clean's important, not dirty, not polluted, not, not compromised. It does not take a lot of sin to wipe out clean. As we stand here this morning, uh, there are many great things about our nation. But right now, our nation is not clean. It is going through awful turmoil that has been created by corruption. And corruption wipes out cleanliness. And that doesn't endure forever. Purity or cleanness lasts forever. Clean, clean what? In heart, clean in soul, clean in mind. Uh, what it means is the law of God is not tainted. And that's important because it comes from the mind of God which tells us the mind of God is not tainted by any shadow or corruption or impurity. We'll talk more about that next week. It goes on to say the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. We're going to touch much more on this when we cover uh, God's holiness later in this series. But just to touch base, what it points out is that God's rules are true and righteous. 
And this means that they're dependable and can be leaned on. Uh, when Pilate said to Jesus so sarcastically, what is truth? King David would have replied, God's rules are truth. It goes on to say that God's law and precepts are more valuable than gold or sweeter than honey. Uh, that was that era's form of sugar, right? So by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. In other words, they help, they steer. It, it, you're walking down the road and it keeps you out of the ditch on either side. In other words, when you line up with God, when you track with his heart and his thoughts, when you cooperate with his rules, it proves to be valuable and sweet. You can find this idea salted all through Psalms and, I might add, Proverbs as well. This background then gives rise to the whole moral law argument. And the question comes, where does our sense of morality, the sense of right or wrong, come from? Uh, to argue that there's no moral law doesn't work because in arguing that there's no moral law, you are revealing that there is a set of morals by which you are arguing the point. Thus, all you're really saying, stating is that you don't agree with God about his moral law. You want to write and establish your own. But it begs, where did the concept of right and wrong come from? But in either case, you're expressing that there are, for lack of a better term, rules by which we have to abide. And this means that in either system, there are morals and absolutes. And as so many have said, I'm thinking of C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Frank Turek, William Lane Craig, Ravi Zacharias, who, by the way, also just passed and went to be in heaven with the Lord, J. Warner Wallace, Lee Strobel, and many other Christian apologists. To have a moral law means that there has to be a moral law giver. There has to be a source. It has to come from somewhere. We would say it has to come from someone. And there's a lot more to be said here, but let's go back to David and the psalmist's points of view. Here's the important point. The law isn't seen by David as some harsh, legalistic, burdensome, dreary set of obscure rules and punishments, much like the picture that we get when we read the New Testament with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were instead, they were agreements between two people, God and David, that brought life, success, prosperity, and joy. And for David, they were a delight to keep. Why? Because he was in a covenant relationship with God and already acknowledged God and that he was all-powerful and that he was all-good. It was part of the fabric of his world. God had made fantastic promises to him, and he never failed to believe in them. Uh, Michael Heiser uh, in his, uh, has a fascinating commentary on this in his book, The Unseen Realm. I'd like to quote him on this because many of us have wrestled with We know David blew it in some spots, and we know that um, he had struggles. So the question is, uh, you know, why was David a man after God's own heart? He states, Did salvation come in the Old Testament by obeying the rules? To ask this question is to miss the point. He says salvation in the Old Testament meant love for Yahweh alone. One had to believe that Yahweh was the God of all gods, trusting that this most high God had chosen covenant relationship with Israel to the detriment of all the other nations. The law was how one demonstrated that love. Salvation was not merited. 
Yahweh alone had initiated the relationship. Yahweh's choice and covenant promise had to be believed. An Israelite believing, uh, to an Israelite, a believing loyalty was shown by faithfulness to the law. The core of the law was this, fidelity to Yahweh alone, above all gods. To worship other gods was to demonstrate the absence of belief, love, and loyalty. Doing the works of the law without having the heart aligned only to Yahweh was inadequate. This is why the promise of the possession of the promised land is repeatedly and inextricably inextricably linked to the Torah to the first two commandments, i.e., staying clear of idolatry and of apostasy. And he goes on to say, the history of Israel's king illustrates the point. King David was guilty of the worst crimes against humanity in the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. You can find that story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. He was clearly in violation of the law and deserving of death. Nevertheless, his belief in who Yahweh was among all gods never wavered. God was merciful to him, sparing him from death, though his sin would have consequences the rest of his life. But there is no doubt, Heiser says, that David was ever a believer in Yahweh and never worshipped another. Yet other kings of Israel and, and, and Judah, and obviously Saul would fall into that lot, were tossed aside uh, and both kingdoms were sent into exile because they worshipped other gods. Personal failure, he writes, even of the worst kind, did not send the nation into exile. Worshipping other gods did. That quote brings us to another part of the Psalms. Psalm 119, uh, if you have ever read it, it's either loved or loathed by people. Uh, It's Sometimes, uh, if you loathe it, it's kind of seen as that long slog, kind of like driving I-5 from Seattle to Portland, that keeps you from getting on with the other chapters in the Bible for your daily reading. You know, kind of like, am I ever going to get through this thing? Or, it's seen as one of the most exquisite and sublime expressions of awe and gratefulness ever written towards God. It's right in the center of your Bible. And it is by far the longest psalm in the Bible. And it takes you, if you take it as a chapter, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. Uh, originally, again, re- remember that it was a song so that it could be memorized. Kind of, it was the longest Jewish song on record. Kind of like a, a Jewish version of American Pie by Don McLean or Harry Chapin's Taxi, right? Kind of that sort of thing. Watch the tone. Listen to the inflection. Catch the awe. Hear the praise, sense the gratitude, soak in the appreciation. It reads like this, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Then I shall not be put to shame. Having my eyes fixed on all your commandments, I will praise you with an upright heart. When I learn your righteous rules, I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, Teach me your statutes. 
With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your way. I will delight in your statutes and I will not forget your word. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Here's the point. You become like the God you believe in. If you think God's all-powerful and if you think he's all-good and you think he's righteous and you think he's holy then you will start to become like that. It's a process, right? Many of us have been in that process for a while, and for some of us it takes longer than others. But it's a process nonetheless. But will you become like the God you believe in? And that is as true for nations as it is for individuals. We'll see more of this next week. I don't think it's any secret that we collectively as a country have once again come full circle and spiraled down to the lowest common denominator. Injustice, misuse of authority, blatant racism, murder, rioting, and vandalism have once again broken out. The psalmist would have, have a solution for this. David would have said this, turn back to God. And step into covenant relation with him, relationship with him and walk in his ways. Come under his rule, come under his authority and his ways. Biblically, we would call this repentance. And we as individuals need to turn, and we as a nation need to turn as well. We'll come back next week and look at more of this um, in terms of how it affected uh, Israel as a nation. But would you join me in prayer? Father, as we've walked through this, my prayer is that you have lit people up with joy of thinking about walking with you in a right way, that we would be obedient to the desires and the precepts and the rules that you lay out and that we would walk in joy with them and with you. Father, we know that your salvation, your grace has opened that window. We could not keep the law before we knew you. But in your grace, we can do it because you've given us a right heart. And now we can do it because we get to, not because we have to. Lord, may you make our faces radiant. May you make our faces shine. May you help us make a difference in our world that we live in right now. And we ask for this in great mercy and grace in your name. Amen.
Thanks, Lord, for you. I, I've been, uh, I need to let you know I've been really encouraged by a number of you getting in touch with me and letting me know how good uh, the discussions have been in your families um, off of the questions. And so uh, thank you, and I'm, I'm glad that that is going well. We have some more questions uh, this morning, and then we'll have our prayer points for you again. And uh, so let's start out. So this morning, as we were talking about the law, as you have think about what's your picture of the law? What kind of pictures do you, uh, do you have in your mind when someone says the law? Number two, do you think God's eternal power and divine nature can be discerned through the creation? And if so, how? Give some illustrations. What, um, how have you come to learn that? Number three, what do you think of the idea of the law as the law being your tutor or your teacher, your mentor, your coach? Have you ever thought of that idea before? What would that look like? Number four, what is the most important thing that stood out to you in Psalm 19? As we were going through that, uh, you may have to open your Bibles, right? Psalm 19, but look at it again. And uh, what, what caught your attention there this morning? Number five, have you ever wrestled with the difference between King Saul and King David, right? And it seems like David did way worse things than King Saul, and yet David was a man after God's honor and blessed, and King Saul was cast to the side. Um, talk about that, wrestle with that. What have you come to a conclusion on that? And then number six, uh, what character quality would you associate with Psalm 119? If you had to think of a character quality, what character quality would you associate with that? All right? Well, have fun discussing. And then for prayer requests, uh, let's, uh, number one, let's pray for repentance and humility for us as a country. And then for mercy and healing and uh, for a spirit of peace to come on. There are spiritual entities involved with this that are much bigger than we know of, and we need to ask God to have mercy on us. Number two, let's pray for God to send a greater grace to us as a country right now, even though we don't deserve it, right? Uh, we, we need to seek him, and let's ask that he would send that greater grace. Number three, let's continue to pray for the Kennard family, the Shaleen family, the, the Geringer family. You, you know how it is for them, it... The death happens, we realize that, and then we move on, right? But for them, it's with them a long time. So let's continue to lift them up in prayer. Number four, let's continue to remember our frontline people with the COVID-19 plague. Number five, let's continue to pray for the spread of the gospel in this and that uh, God would bust it open and that people would come in. And I want, I'm praying that God will, people will walk in the church and say, can you tell me about God? Can you tell me about Jesus? I had a dream last night, and I, I need to know. Uh, that would just be kicking fun. So let's pray that way. And then number six, let's continue to pray. For us as the Northview families, we continue to be spread out and unable to, to assemble together. My, my heart hurts that I don't know how you're doing, and I can't talk to you. And uh, I'm sure that you're feeling some of that strain. Uh, this is getting to be not a lot of fun. And uh, it's going to, again, church... Require patience, right? We're going to have to wait patiently before the Lord and uh, keep continue to pray that way. Um, we have to adjust to that, not it to us. And let's ask God that um, he would help us in that. So there's your um, questions for the morning. There's your prayer points. I hope you have a wonderful time as a family, and uh, we'll see you next week.